0: Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you are enjoying the nice fall weather. The weather in Zhuhai right now is not the usual unbearably hot and humid weather that I arrived in, which is really great, for me at least, as I hate that kind of weather. I've also been trying to do my best to learn Chinese, and it's totally kicking my ass, although I've noticed that I'm easing into it a bit more Easily than a few of my other classmates and peers, as I had the opportunity to learn and speak a bit of Cantonese growing up, and my parents also sent me to Saturday Mandarin classes when I was in grade school, which I didn't expect it would help out, but here I am trying to learn Chinese, so thanks to my mom and dad for that. I've also been traveling quite a bit on the weekends, making short one, two-hour trips to mostly around southern China. So I've been to Shenzhen, Xiamen, Guangzhou, and of course, Hong Kong. I hope to eventually make it more north to other cities such as Shanghai or Beijing, although those are a bit further. And I also want to definitely check out other parts of Asia. Um, Anyway, today I've got a really fun and great episode to share with you as I'm speaking with Natalia Gomez. Natalia was born in Columbia before her parents moved to Virginia. Natalia completed her BFA at Carnegie Mellon University, actually right before I came to start my grad program. But Natalia stuck around and continued working with and within the Pittsburgh arts community. Natalia is a visual artist working primarily in sculpture and photography. Much of her work she describes as the visual language of basic contemporary building materials. So sheetrock... Pine 2x4s, and she uses these materials to explore form, labor, and the body's relationship to spaces. I've actually known Natalia for quite a while as she was my neighbor the entire time that I was in Pittsburgh. We both lived in this really wonderful art loft space that was owned by two professors, Carol Kumada and John Beckley. And the rooftop of this particular building has a really beautiful view, a 270 degree view of most of Pittsburgh. So I would often go on the rooftops with Natalia and the other neighbors in the building and we would have some food, get some drinks, and talk the night away. So that's how I slowly got to know Natalia. At the time of our interview, Natalia was working for the Outreach and Education Program at the Carnegie Museum of Art, but since then she has shifted over to a few other areas, Natalia recently told me she finally came to terms with her keeping her day job and her practice separate. So for our conversation, we delve into what failure and success means to us individually, how one comes to accept a name, different types of outreach in art institutions and what that means, and weddings. Our conversation kind of goes all over the place, and it kind of reminds me of our past times talking on the rooftop of Pittsburgh. In any case, I hope you enjoy this. All right, so you ready? Yeah. Um, So right now I'm talking to Natalia Gomez, and we are actually in the basement of the Carnegie Museum of Art. So yeah, why why don't we start off with yeah, actually, the start was how your day was. It started something easy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, my day was okay. It It's interesting. So at the museum, I do wear two hats. Um, I work in education, and I work in curatorial, and I also sort of just I volunteer myself wherever I can to help out, wherever help is needed. So today was the day. For sure, that had multiple components. So I was doing work for the curatorial project that I work on. um, And then in education, trying to come up with sort of next year's team programs. And then we have this inclusion working group uh, where sort of the staff created kind of recurring every two months or so. Meeting where staff gets together and talks about, you know, are there issues or exhibitions or programs that we need to rethink or you know issues. So that was... That was kind of my day. It was, like, lots of, like, talking to people about all sorts of wide range of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes we forget that, like, there's so many administrative things to do even in creative fields. Yeah. Like, sometimes when I think about my practice, like, I'm like, what did I do today? Oh, I wrote a bunch of uh, proposals.
1: Right, right. If you're not sitting in front of a computer, it's almost like, what did
0: I I I accomplish? Applied for some things. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what ex- do you want to talk about, I guess, where, where you grew up, how you came to Pittsburgh?
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the long, windy road. Yeah, the long, windy um, road. So That's where all the juicy things are, I feel like. <laughs> I guess. So I grew up in Virginia. I was born in Bogota, Colombia. My mom is from Bogota. My dad is from Venezuela. And they actually met at ESL class at American University, which I think is like the Where's cutest, America University? Um, that is in George- in Washington, D.C., Okay. An American, which, anyway, so they weren't sure if they were going to come back to the States afterwards. Um, my dad's a physicist, and so he ended up landing this job in the middle of nowhere-ish, at the time, Virginia. And so my parents moved there when I was probably, like, one year old or something like that. After you were born in After Columbia. I was born in Columbia. Okay. Um, then my dad was offered the job. So they moved, and at the time, it was, like, dirt roads and cows and yeah. It's like a giant particle accelerator, which is where my dad works. Now it's not so much. It's a very military-based town. Mm. But um, growing up, I swear I'm, I will get to the point where I got to Pittsburgh. Um oh, no, growing up Take your time. As, you know, with immigrant parents in particular, yeah. and one being a scientist, um, definitely the goal was always like, you can do anything in the world except don't study art. Like, whatever you do, don't study art. My mom's an artist. But like...
0: She, was she fully supportive, she or there was like a fight between like her needs and dad's I mean, needs?
1: I think it was like she she had been able she had struggled to find a job uh-huh. as an artist, mm. and she wasn't you know living somewhere where you show art in the middle of Virginia. There's no market for it. Yeah. So there was no proof in my dad's experiences because he grew up in a small mining town in Venezuela. In Venezuela, yeah, and so he. The idea that you could be an artist and, like, have a life was just totally foreign. And it was, you know, sort of my mom demonstrated that it's really hard. And um, she wouldn't have probably been able to support herself quite as easily if she hadn't been married. So my dad was very supportive. Follow your passions and your dreams. Just, like, don't go to university for art, whatever you do. (laughs) So at the time, I was like, all right. Like, that seems logical. I get it. Like, you want, you know, I want a job, too. Yeah. And so I was really good at math. And I wanted to do aeronautical engineering. Wow. That was like what I wanted to do. I, was
0: I go to uva i think I knew what that even was I liked, in high school. <laughs> I, I definitely only knew because I went to um,
1: this, because my brother went to UVA. Uh-huh. And um, we had some friends who lived around there. So I was like familiar with the campus and just thought it was pretty. And so we went to like some open house and walked through the engineering hall. And I was like, look. That seems cool. And it had some design elements, Mm -hmm. so you had to, you know, understand, like, aerodynamics. So there's a practical, but also kind of, like, it seemed a design and science. So it seemed like a good mix. So I was like, that, you know, I sort of set my sights on it. Yeah. But it's crazy because, you know, turn of events, right? I, like, have my heart set on it. It's great. I'm going to go. I have this guidance counselor who's Mm -hmm. like, of course, says, you're not going to get in. Despite being in advanced classes, you know, working my tail off. Wow. Um, you're not like gonna Like anywhere. In. She's like, you're not going to get into UVA for oh, this. Okay. For sure. And you're probably not going to get into any, like, other engineering or architecture. I don't know why based, she said this. Well,
0: your grades not good enough in her mind? Or what?
1: I don't know. I was, was like, I got, like, a of? really good GPA and I'm in advanced class. I don't know. Oh, my Anyway, gosh. so this woman, whatever reason, she said, you're not going to get in. So I was like, okay, I've got a plan. I'm going to apply for art because I was always drawing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll like do the back door. I'll like, Mm -hmm. I'll apply for art because I also had absolutely no idea that, like, what caliber of like artists there already were out in, you know, the country who have been like dedicating their life to making this portfolio. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I like was just like, no, nobody goes to art school. Like, I'll just apply, go to art school, but like, I'll like, sneak in yeah. to engineering that way. So that's what I started doing. I applied to four schools and one of them, so three of them are in-state because I was like, okay, that's the only thing that my family's going to be able to afford, Yeah, in-state. But then I got this poster in the mail. This is so nerdy and so lame. What? I got a cool nerdy poster and yeah. it was like, look how hard you can work at literally every hour of the day from CMU. And it was how like- How they find you? They, you know, they okay. just like send. All right. All the universities just send- People things. Yeah. I'd never heard of this university before. My dad's like, "Oh, it's pretty good." So I was like, "All right, well, I like the poster. I might as well apply if you say it's pretty good." So and
0: your dad was okay with your secret plan to apply as art and switch, or he didn't. Uh,
1: you, I don't know. Okay, he like, didn't. <laughs> he didn't fight me about it. Yeah. Um, I think in his mind it sounded like a logical plan, and yeah. he had at that point ingrained in me. That if I want a job, I can't do art. Yeah. So I think he felt like pretty secure about that. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know.
0: That's I think that's what my parents secretly hoped.
1: So. <laughs> that they had instilled it.
0: They're like, oh, you you can go to an IV, get into art, and then switch. Yeah, right. You know? It's like that's and your then backdoor that, and then plan. And that, that didn't happen.
1: Right. Yeah. Because similar, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, getting into school, I ended up, you know, getting to the schools and choosing Pittsburgh, yeah. CMU. It's sort of like it was this really like long like kind of gut instinct sort of leading me along that ended up getting me here yeah and by the time i got here and i took like my art classes i was like oh, this is amazing <laughs> it was like
0: what was it what was, do you remember that moment um, i'm always curious about that moment when you're like
1: like i'm not I'm well not like switching.
0: especially with people who aren't sure right there are like yeah. some people who so I've, I've never experienced this where they're like, I, knew, I know I'm going to do art my entire life. I never knew that as a kid, so no. I'm always curious for people what happens yeah. when that switch happens.
1: I I don't know, I guess. I mean, I remember the first... I think by the end of the first semester, I was like, I'm hooked. Mm. Um, Concept Studio, I had a really amazing and crazy professor. And Who was the professor? It was Andrew Johnson. Okay. And so our first... Second assignment was to lock ourselves up in isolation for 30 hours. Hmm. So, you know, it was just like such a completely Crazy. radical yeah. shift of what it means to experience or think on your own or think independently. I wish my teachers did that
0: for me. Like, I didn't have anything that radical.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but then I had also like very like like drawing class, you know, yeah, um, yeah, where I was like, oh, I'm terrible at this comparatively to everyone else. Ooh. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I know, which was also really great. <laughs> yeah. It was emphasized, it <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, we all have our strengths, it's yeah. cool, but it was really about, you know, thinking differently. Yeah. And I took a design class for non-majors mm-hmm. second semester, I think. Maybe it was the first, second. And it was because I was like, okay, well, you know, at that point I had already, like, switched from engineering, then I was like, okay, maybe architecture, maybe design. Like, those mm-hmm. are both kind of arty Practical. and practical-ish. Yeah, yeah. And my design class, it was just not really, it didn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the instructor wasn't super helpful. Yeah. And it was also kind of interesting because I remember one of the projects we had to do was uh, the, like, cardboard chair. We have to build a chair uh-huh. out of cardboard with no glue, no, okay, nothing like that. No hardware, no glue. So it just has to be made out of cardboard, and you know I spent all this time. I designed it. It fun- It like worked. It yeah. functioned. And I get to the class, and it's the only one that actually works. But everyone else is like looked prettier, or it had like some reference to some obscure designer in somewhere. But they
0: use glue or something. They they what? they just
1: didn't stand up. They didn't. Oh. You couldn't sit in them because they were just non-functional objects. And mm-hmm. that was like lauded as being more interesting. So I was like, okay. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, forget this. Yeah. Take me in my cardboard chair with me. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. That's
0: funny though because you were actually really practical about it. Yeah. And then that turned you to you know, like <laughs> to completely unpractical. Yeah.
1: I was like, you know what? Forget about it. At least we're honest about yeah, it. I'm just practical. gonna lock
0: myself up for thirty for thirty hours, hours and make a PowerPoint <laughs> about it. It'll be
1: great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's how I got here, and then. Um, it's a great size of a city from going from, like, we don't have sidewalks to not enormous like Manhattan or Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, Pittsburgh was a nice, accessible size. And then I did manage to get a job after mm. college working as a studio assistant. And that kept me here. So. Was
0: that, who was that for? For deep breaks. Oh, that was for deep So okay. I
1: worked for her two years in school. She was my welding professor. Oh, she um, taught at CMU. Mm-hmm. She taught at CMU. She. So she had enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like, we all i I'm mean we all we all do yeah yeah um, i
0: mean if, she, if you can make commissions and work yeah. and i think that's yeah. the se- that's the secret dream of all artists is right. to make money off your work right you know right. and if you can do it you can do
1: it yeah, yeah. right and so yeah at that point she decided to sort of balance the projects in other ways yeah um, she did like teaching and she was very good at it. Yeah, um, yeah. She inspired a lot which is why I was like I'll come volunteer like at your studio like for the yeah. summer and you know she was great. She fed me because she could
0: pay me. my sense was I don't know her too well but my sense was she just really empathetic mm-hmm. and I think that's really I mean I wrote a teaching philosophy and that was the crux of my teaching philosophy which is like empathy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if it's like the greatest center but like yeah. for me it's like you have to try to understand your students otherwise you're just Talking to a wall, right? Or you're pretending your students are mm-hmm. a wall and just like speaking to it, right? And but, it's also
1: yeah. believing in your students, and yeah. then also seeing when somebody is like actually not doing anything, yeah. Too, you know, yeah. sort of being really hyper aware. Because right.
0: um, if you're if you can empathize with them, you also would know how to talk to them when they're right. struggling, as opposed to like you know, I've had teachers who accuse a. Kid who is struggling for like cheating or mm-hmm. by when they actually do try or like and just right. like you're like no like that was not how you should talk to right. students right. yeah
1: and now you've traumatized that student yeah. forever yeah and they <laughs> drop the
0: class less. and they hate you and it's like goddamn yeah
1: yeah totally it is really amazing when you when you come across really great teachers yeah um, and it is you know it does I feel like take a very specific personality mm-hmm. um, to inspire that yeah so. I don't know. It's been a crazy, wild ride yeah. since then. Yeah, because after then, I after being inspired, so inspired from her class, I volunteered for a summer working at her studio and then worked for her as a teaching assistant for welding in multiples. Okay. And then at that point when she decided to stop teaching was when she got a big, giant commission uh-huh. out in East Hampton and then... East Hampton. Yeah. It's <laughs> that's, like some that's, fancy that's, that's property. Mon- that's money. Yeah. It, it was crazy. It was crazy. You know, it was like, oh, it's right by the ocean. And like, really? But it's literally on the ocean. Yeah. Uh, these giant mansions. So yeah. she was able to hire me on. And then I don't know. It's been great to get to know the, the city also after being a student. Yeah. It's like your student perspective is so different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that was the same with me in undergrad. Like, I didn't, <clears throat> I realized. I realized, I met, I got close to some grad students my last year, and I realized that grad students knew more about the city in their one semester Mm -hmm, than I did in all four years, and then I saw that same thing play out when I went to
1: grad school. And where did you go to undergrad?
0: I went to Cornell. Okay. So it was Ithaca. Yeah. And I just stayed on campus, and then I went to Carnegie Mellon, and I was like, oh, like, my first semester, same thing happened. Like, I knew, I was just like... You know, I found out about the strip district and my students would ask me, where do you like to go? And I was like, strip district. And they're like, is that like a strip club? <laughs> right. Like district? And I was Wait like, Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay. Like.
1: You're like, no, it's just lots of grocery stores. Yeah. I,
0: was like, <laughs> uh, I think I think that's my favorite, um, one of my favorite spots in Pittsburgh.
1: Is the strip. Do you have a favorite part of the strip?
0: What do you mean by part?
1: Or like. Like store. Like, what do you like to visit uh, when you down
0: there? Uh, strip district meets. Oh. Um, this like wholesale yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. meat, but like they'll give you any body part of the animal.
1: That's crazy. At
0: wholesale price, you get like I think, or right, this is, like completely off topic, but like ten dollars, <laughs> okay. ten dollars for like ten pounds of like chicken wings, a so dollar a pound Whoa. of like chicken wings or drumstick or thighs. That's awesome. Uh, but then I like how like you can then go to Penmac and just get like. Right next to wholesale meat is like artisanal cheese, right? And, like, and you can
1: sample all the cheese because everyone there is super friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So I think that's why I like because it's like this weird mix of like artisanal and like wholesale stuff. Mm-hmm. And then like right down the street from there is like. About to expire, like ve- very cheap vegetables and fruits. Yeah, you know, right, like, right. <laughs> you know, and like you go there and say, like, like, "Okay, I can. I'm gonna need to cook this right today. Right. but I can get it like ten dollars for like a huge basket of
1: tomatoes right. or something like yeah. That. <laughs> we can make a tomato sauce. It'll be fine. Yeah, <laughs> and then
0: freeze it. And yeah, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I go there a lot. That's awesome. The strip is something that I have. I like never made it down. I still haven't made it down as many times as I want. Really? Because I. Like, when it gets really crowded, it kind of, like, hikes my anxiety up a little bit. Yeah, yeah,
0: Saturday and Sunday mornings, uh, especially during the summer.
1: But I do remember going early on like a weekday at like mm-hmm. eight that's when everything opens to, early yeah it's wonderful yeah
0: no one's there yeah although it used, they used to not have a uh, street parking they used to have street parking for free but now you have to pay everywhere
1: yeah i'm sure because right. it's also exploding yeah yeah
0: well all of pittsburgh's exploding
1: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and then so after you did that with the breaks did you end up at the carnegie museum
1: yeah so i worked for her two years full-time after school and then it And then decided to sort of move on and see what other career opportunities I could find. So I sort of just, like, left with really no plan. And Um, were you
0: still doing art this entire time?
1: Yes, um, I was. The first, really during that time, it wasn't until after that, those two years, that I started making anything, I think, like, meaningful. Yeah, You know, it was sort of like I had a studio and I would pull things together and, like, because at that point, realizing that making art without having enough life experience is, like, a very... It's hard. It's hard, it's right? Because what do you make art about? Yeah. You know, you, like, live in a sort of bubble for four years in college. Yeah. Making art about topics that seem like good topics yeah. to make something about. Yeah. But, like, you like you have no lived experience. So yeah. um, I think that was, like, those first two years where, like, oh, I should try this project that was really successful in, like, some crit. And then being like, this is stupid. I don't want to remake <laughs> the same thing because somebody liked it to crit. Uh, yeah. So I definitely, like, just putzed around. Like, I made a mess. I'm sure, I like— I putzed around
0: for four years. After, yeah.
1: So. I mean, I feel like I'm still putzing.
0: <laughs> Ideally, you should be, actually, I think. Like
1: a constant putzing. Yeah. Oh,
0: well, because then— yeah. cause, Because that means that you're trying to figure things out. Mm.
1: Yeah. Totally. You, sh- you shouldn't have,
0: I don't think you should have things figured out. Right. For yeah. arts, at least.
1: I will say that that was the hardest thing for me to
0: accept.
1: Accept, yeah. yeah. Because in school, it was kind of like you think of your project, and because it was so concept oriented, you know, you sort of had to put the critical lens on every aspect of your project, mm. of your piece, you know? And. You were sort of constantly under pressure to do everything in two weeks. It was like your mm-hmm. sort of timeline. So you had to have a, something kind of like solidly, packly done in yeah. two weeks. Yeah. When really you should be failing fast. You should be failing often. You should mm. be trying something and then tweaking in a way that for four years nobody gave you the room to iterate.
0: Yeah. Or do that's that. the, I don't never thought about that. Failing fast. Yeah. Like, I think that's good.
1: It took me a really. I remember the first time I heard that phrase, I was like,
0: oh, "Who told? Who said goodness.
1: that?" Oh, I don't know. I think I read it somewhere. It was talking about. It was something about creativity and yeah. and like one of the issues with schools, not just art schools, but in general, was um, this idea that you that you're sort of going to get it right the first time, hmm. and that that's not how you problem solve. Yeah. Or learn, for that right. matter, because you're never testing those boundaries. Yeah, and, and seeing what what fits so and I feel like that's very important now in my practice is just going for it yeah. um, instead of trying to sit with the sketchbook because I do yeah work in sculpture the sketchbook becomes a really big limitation because you mm. can try to imagine what something's going to be right and work out all of its problems ahead of time right but until you actually put it together you might be like oh I wasted all that time thinking about it and it's actually totally stupid and I should do it this way or I should do it that way yeah like, Scrap the whole thing.
0: I think. I think I've been. I think after grad school, I was actually learning how to fail fast. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm a late bloomer, maybe. But, <laughs> no. Yeah, but like, no. I mean, because because I think I think that particular phrase puts into words what I was trying to do all of grad school. Mm. Because yeah, yeah. in grad school, I continually told myself, and in, in the end of year review, I'd be like oh, I want to, like, be more loose. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I really knew what that means. and Yeah. And all – everyone at the f- at the reviews are like, okay, I mean, sure, go ahead, get looser, whatever. And right. in my mind it was because I think, like you said, I think the sketchbook metaphor was similar. Like I'd have an idea of how my videos were.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I wouldn't film it until I knew what that idea was. And then I'd film mm-hmm. it right. and it would happen, just like the sketchbook I- right. metaphor where you draw – and then it becomes, I don't know, bigger drawing or, right. or a painting. Yeah. And I think after grad school, I mean, I've, I've said this a lot, but I would put myself in uncomfortable situations mm-hmm. where decisions were made for me and then I'd have to, I guess, like you said, problem solve. Yeah, respond, right. right. Yeah, or like force myself down a creative path that I don't know where it's going to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's something really wonderful about also like thinking like limitations yeah. um, and challenges and obstacles Um, I was recently, so I'm I'm working on this project with a dancer choreographer. And, you know, my sculpture practice is like two by fours and drywall, like usually big. And one of the things I remember in talking to them about was, she was like, it'd be really great if it could fit in a car and it was lightweight. And I was like, fit in a car, lightweight. Totally the opposite of what I usually do. But you know what? Like, awesome. Let's see if we can... Like, that's a challenge, right? How do you create something three-dimensional and architectural and and create space while also being able to quickly wrap it up, put it in a car, and, like, take it anywhere? Yeah. You know, like, that was, that's was that been a really fun thing that I... Did you solve it yet? No. <laughs>
0: you know, who's that Korean artist? You know that Korean artist who does that? No. Soho, I think.
1: Oh, is it the sort of translucent architectural Yeah,
0: but then it folds up. They're like they're like architectural spaces. The idea was he would make he travel back and forth between Korea and New York City. And so at the beginning, now he now when he does I'm not quite sure what he's referencing, but it was originally referencing like his home in Korea and then his home in New York City. And so they're made of fabric wow. that could then be folded into a suitcase. But then he could unpack it and then he'd have a um, physical representation of his home in Korea or his home in New York City.
1: That's so bonkers.
0: And yeah.
1: Yeah. See, limitations.
0: I guess the hardest part though is like figuring out when those limitations are encroaching on your creative development. Oh, yes. Right? Absolutely. And, right. So, like, but,
1: and yeah. when they're beneficial and when they're not. And I think yeah. that in some ways, when when they result in sort of like, you know, a failed piece or something like yeah. that, that's when you just say, like, okay, like that was a great exercise. Yeah. You know, like, what do we learn from that exercise that yeah. we want to continue? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was like really stuck and I couldn't figure out what to do, I just decided to like limit myself to using scrap, uh-huh. like whatever, like cut off pieces. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, do something with it. And it was just like these, you know, little compositional things. But the great thing was, even though those are terrible looking and not great pieces of art. They helped get the gears turning to then yeah. actually right. start a, a body of right. work that I was excited about. So it's like, yeah, re- re- realizing when those limitations are s- not helpful and then right. hoping that they just kind of like kept your brain moving.
0: Yeah, and also working is helps you f- figure things out and creates more work. Yeah, it seems so intuitive, but it's like- right.
1: But it's actually kind of hard because you put all these. Obstacle yeah, like way. oh,
0: like that idea isn't good, or uh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's a
1: waste, or I don't have time. Or- yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, totally. I think and and once you stop, it's I feel like it's really hard to get going again. Yeah. So let's talk
0: about your work. What where is it now? I mean, I went on your website yeah. and I saw all these like I don't know how to describe them like wall pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, assemblage. Uh, I saw that huge piece of all those chairs that look like stuff. Yeah. Together.
1: So, there's a big chair arch, which was my senior thesis. Um, and I haven't made anything quite like it since. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. My art is very much wall art using two by fours and drywall and the processes in which people make walls. Mm-hmm. And so, that stemmed from my experience when I first worked for the D studio Studio. Um, we were doing a lot of renovations, and this was like new to me, construction. Yeah. And there was something really fascinating about how much time and energy, and like, like holding a microscope up to the walls to check for their perfection and flatness. Yeah, when no one ever notices walls, you know, it's like yeah, the goal is to make it invisible. Mm-hmm.
0: Good, good good, design is un- invisible design.
1: Exactly. And it was just such a fascinating idea that there's so much labor involved and there's, you know, you have this sort of environmental impact also of yeah. the quarries, of the health of workers who are sanding this. I mean, there's all of these things tied to this stupid sheet of plaster <laughs> board that's just paper and fiberglass and like yeah. a bunch of horrible things for you. It was just fascinating. And so I got really transfixed with trying to really master that material, referencing architecture and space, but also then sort of trying to abstract it enough so that you could actually look at it with your fresh eyes. Um, and I think that that's been the hardest part is mm. how do you take something so ubiquitous and present it in a way that people are looking at it differently, Yeah, you know? And that's always a challenge, especially with walls, because yeah. <laughs> we're so used to them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's currently the the big sort of challenge. I think is are they where to go from there?
0: Do you see them as purely formal things, or do they have do they have like a underlying conceptual idea that they're basing off of? Maybe it's a combination of both.
1: I think it's probably both. I mean, I mean, the
0: obvious one that comes to mind is the fact that our president wants to build a fucking wall. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> right. like, you know. You the, have, the,
1: I mean, the, yeah. I, th- I think that that's right now I haven't quite honed in on, on the specific. I mean, for me, it just conjures up this cloud of references and ideas, these mm-hmm. walls, these metaphorical walls, physical yeah. walls, you know, the, the workers who are often building these walls and making them, and finishing them. Oftentimes our migrant workers, Mm -hmm. undocumented labor, you know, walls are the spaces we inhabit. What happens in between those walls? So, like, there are a lot of these ideas floating around, but I haven't landed on a way to talk about them Mm -hmm. through these forms and objects. Um, I mean, I think that so far the only thing I sort of circle on is, like, the labor and the sort of kind of, oh, I don't know, it's... It disappears yeah. and it's hard to get to yeah um and that there is still a beauty and a craftsmanship for mm-hmm. something so kind of dumb um <laughs> as a sheet of drywall um yeah. that there is more to it so yeah. it's kind of a, I'm circling around it a little bit yeah i haven't quite
0: i've always wondered i'd like i've always wondered like how long would it be or it'd be really interesting to have a piece of drywall that's been drilled in so many times and covered with spackle mm-hmm. so many times that it's just all oh, spackle. It's just spackle, it's just right. Spackle. It's just a
1: sheet of spackle. <laughs> totally. You know. Right. And it's funny because I worked as an art installer um, afterwards, and I still remember coming across that moment where the curator wants the picture on you know, center of a wall. Yeah. And that center has been drilled into so many times. <laughs> you just couldn't find anything. <laughs> For the picture to hang on to so they just had to A get remake. rid of that wall yeah yeah they are just like all right well round right of luck it was like
0: <laughs> what i think was it 55 inches or is that isn't that center, it, uh, typical center? 50 center i think 50, 50 center yeah
1: F- yeah oh my gosh see look it's been that long 60 center
0: 60, 60 center. center
1: yeah depending on close, how you that's, hang that's five yeah. inches off <laughs> pretty close yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can hang it lower for accessibility. Yeah. It's
0: cool. You can take liberties. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And do you do you travel a lot back to Colombia? I assume not Venezuela, right? Right now it's going crazy. No, yeah.
1: There. Um, I've actually only been to Venezuela once, and that was when my grandparents were alive. I was in middle school, mm-hmm. maybe, I think. Because my dad, although he was born there and his parents lived there, they were both from Spain. So he has no family in Venezuela.
0: It's all in Spain.
1: It's all in Spain, mm. but he was an only child, and because it was after the Spanish Civil War that my grandparents moved to Venezuela, mm-hmm. they cut off all ties essentially. Mm. Um, so we really don't have any. I don't. I don't know that family at all. Mm. They um, cut
0: off ties because of because
1: my grandfather had he fought against Franco, and then he was caught, and then he fought for Franco, and then <laughs> oh he fled God. because wow. like. Get out of there! Yeah. Um. So it was just, I think, a safety thing. Yeah. Um. To really not have any relations. Right. Right. Um, to not get persecuted. Yeah. For leaving, as far as I understand. Um. Uh, Colombia. Yes. We. I used to go back every two years when I was growing up. Mm. Um. Since college, it's much harder just with work and things like that. So yeah. it's been every about five years or so. But yeah. I still stay in touch with family. It'd be so good to go back, and especially as Politically, things stabilized. It's safer for people to go to Colombia. To Colombia, yeah. yeah. Not in Venezuela, of course not. Right, right. Wish. That's such a. Mess. I was in
0: Miami, and I think I didn't realize like there's like a huge population of Venezuelans there who are all like refugees from there.
1: Yeah, it is a really bad situation, and it's you know kind of astonishing what news we do hear and what we don't hear and how often um you know i think not, not that we have to go down that path but thinking about yeah refugees and immigrants you know especially now in this time when all this light is being shed on these families who are being separated um here at the museum actually we've been hosting a couple of groups from uh, this organization called Holy Family that has taken in some of these children who have been separated um, to give them something to do, to show them a museum, to talk about artwork, and just sort of like trying to just show support and love. One of the things that was really surprising to me, and I just feel like an ignorant idiot for it... um, most of the people were from like Uruguay and Guatemala, mm-hmm. like very like almost nobody from Mexico. And I found that just surprising because there's so much of this, you know, conversation that our president has posed that, you know, you're just having all these people from the border and they just like hop on over. Right. When the reality is that there are a lot of countries in Central and South America that have populations who are fleeing because they're not safe yeah. and they're making a really long journey and mm-hmm. your wall is like, get out of here with it, yeah. you know? Oh, mm-hmm. such a tragic situation. Yeah. Apparently, I wasn't here for it, but two two little boys were pulled out of our tour. By here. ice? No, not by ice, but to, to go be reunited, oh, fortunately. Okay. Okay. But it was like, we have to go now. You got 15 minutes. Say your goodbyes and the boys are like, okay, bye. Uh, you know, reunited so with
0: their families back in their country or what?
1: Um, I think in the court system. Oh, okay. Um, and then depending on what how their trial went, mm. either back to their country or seeking asylum here. Right. It's crazy.
0: So um yeah, let's 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 talk about I guess the outreach that you do here and yeah. the museum.
1: Um, so gosh, that's funny because my Education hat is in teen programs. Okay, but I like you know I slide around. um We're a pretty lean crew of education staff, so I because of my language skills, I've been helping out with that program, mm-hmm. um, which is primarily with our school visits um, team, which are awesome. And they you know they'll run programs for any school that wants to come. If they can't, if it's financially too much, we have scholarship. You know like. We, they offer a lot of programs for students, which is hard because a lot of schools don't right. see the value in visits to art museums. Right. A different topic. And then
0: you're – because you, you can speak Spanish, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I have been helping out because I speak Spanish. I just, like, essentially just give a warm welcome. Um, and we have a really wonderful teaching staff who has been really great navigating kind of, like, the language barriers. But right. also the kids are kind of learning English. So it's an exchange. They're teaching her Spanish. And she's sort of giving them some tools in English and yeah, yeah. I just kind of like help out and just smile at these wonderful <laughs> kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, And then otherwise, I've been trying to connect more are the Latino population in Pittsburgh to resources here at the museum. Like we do have a lot of resources. We have a membership program for girls 13 to 18 who financially might not have access to the museum. So that's something that. You know, regardless of your population, like you should have access to this thing. We'll see if I can get it to just be non-gender specific. But at the moment, it's for girls mm. founded by our Women's Committee to empower young women. Yeah. Sounds great. But we should just have all teens. Yeah. Shouldn't just have access to this thing. But this what is,
0: is the Latino or I guess the um, or is the Latinx population yeah. like in Pittsburgh? I
1: It's to growing. Me, to
0: me, it's I mean, it, it could be just people I know, but to me, they've been largely invisible it seems yeah compared to other groups
1: ethnic groups yeah i mean i think it's growing and part of the thing is yeah i mean i think that it has been largely invisible i forget i remember somebody mentioning sort of referencing it as like the the sort of invisible minority of pittsburgh that it is growing and you know i think that it's spread across a lot of pittsburgh but it is sort of neighborhood specific Mm. as i understand it is crazy because for me i'm also like where are my Latinos? <laughs> like, where are you? Um, you know, like everyone just comes out of the woodwork for dancing uh, or food. It, it has been really eye-opening to, like, find pockets. So I've yeah. been trying to connect with the Latino Community Center in downtown and sort of through them sort of branch out and spread the word. Brashear High School has one of the largest ESL programs for Spanish-speaking students, mm. as I understand it. And I think it's Beach View, Beachview mm-hmm. is where there's like the largest concentration of Latinx communities mm-hmm. members. Yeah. But I feel like also Oakland has like an odd like chunk of humans here. <laughs> you know, I don't know, like we're all just like sprinkled about Pittsburgh, yeah. which is crazy. Um I went
0: to Patron recently and I heard I saw I heard a lot and saw a lot of Latinx people there, which I was kind of shocked because I was like I thought it'd be just a bunch of white people
1: there. Yeah, it's, I was similar like it's, it's like
0: it's like East Liberty, totally catering to like Tex-Mex, like bad, Yeah. bad, uh, I mean, right, like, bad is, Mexican, is, 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 is it Mexican food? I don't even know what food they're trying to sell. Yeah,
1: I think they're trying to sell
0: so, I, so But then I went there like I think a few weeks ago and I was like, whoa, like there's lots of people speaking Spanish here. Yeah. Which is sort of shocking.
1: Right. I was similarly very surprised. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Excellent. I need yeah. to come here more often.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess it's authentic. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I
1: don't know. <laughs> right. I feel like a lot of the, the food is kind of riffed on. Yeah. You know? I
0: don't know. Yeah. I Maybe yeah, I should look into it. Like, maybe the owners are, are Latinx. Yeah. I'm not sure. I have sure. no idea.
1: I know that they have another location somewhere else, but I don't know where it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to know that. I mean, but there are some... Popping up, like I remember, um, I still haven't been, but there's the Colombian spot, which is- What's the Colombian spot? It's called the Colombian spot. It's a restaurant. Where is it? It's on the south side. I haven't been to it either. So it's
0: Colombian food and you're Colombian.
1: I know. I know. I know. It's crazy. I haven't been there. And they were hosting all the soccer games for the World Cup, Mm. which I also missed all of. (laughs) So sad. But it Don't worry. So did I. (laughs) I do feel like there have been more um, like- different kinds of like Latinx food popping up here and there. So there's that
0: Taquitos the a uh, food truck on Penn that's right by right across from Bunker Projects.
1: Oh I haven't been up on I think Penn for a while.
0: I've seen it a lot. I, I vaguely remember that It's like a, it's plastic. like a black food truck with like the letterings like green
1: and red. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Uh, right. I, I am remembering this. And also in um Braddock you have uh, Bracero Grill. Mm-hmm. I haven't is, been there.
0: Oh, it's so it's good.
1: It's so good. Um, yeah, owned by two young Mexican guys. Super cool. Yeah, so there's, like, lots of yeah. food popping around, you know. It is really curious, though, to try to, like, connect with. Um, I feel like I was only really successful with when I used to go salsa dancing. Where'd yeah. you go salsa dancing? There's a place in the South Side that no longer exists, oh, and okay. then there's... um. There was a place called Mexico City that was downtown. Yeah. Also, I don't think exists or has music. Yeah. Then cabaret theater, they have like salsa still, yeah. though that was like more of like people who take classes yeah. go there, and less like Mexico City was great because it was everyone. Yeah. You know, like even the guy who's like the line cook, like he got off work and he'd like come salsa dancing. Oh, awesome. Um, it was a really awesome mix of ages and people and identifications.
0: Yeah. I, had a, I had a really informal salsa dance class. I, yeah. I was at a, was at a bar. Was, this is not a real class, but I was at a bar in Miami, <laughs> and I was with two other residents, um, two friends, and a woman and a man. We were all at the bar, and then one one of the waitresses who was, ooh, got off started hitting on the friends. So She bought all of us drinks, and then she shooed me and the other guy away. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so my friends like you want to learn how to salsa dance, so he was teaching me how to salsa dance while. Well.
1: You While know. they were having a great time.
0: Well, I don't, well, I mean, she, she, I think she wanted to also escape, but she also bought, the waitress bought all of us drinks, so we right. like. Right, so you can't so, really, so, like. So <laughs> we're like, sure, we'll take the drink. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he was teaching us also dance, and she was like, help. Yeah. But we're like, but we <laughs> got free drinks.
1: Right. Just five more minutes. Yeah, more minutes. and he will be fine. Yeah, you know? we're here, don't yeah. worry. Nothing will happen. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I remember at those, two they would have, like, a 30-minute quick lesson. Yeah. But like. You know, it sort of like doesn't matter whether you knew or not. It yeah. would just like go and it's all about
0: the hips. Yeah, that's all what about the I hips. heard. I still haven't figured it out yet.
1: That's <laughs> no, okay. It's also about the stepping. I mean, like, as long as yeah. you don't get the yeah the shuffling around. Uh, yeah, you know? but yeah, I'm I do miss doing that. But I feel like that's where I was like, oh, there is a Latino community here. Yeah, uh-huh. It's crazy coming from Virginia, especially. I was like,
0: was is there a Latino community no. in Virginia? No.
1: Not in. I mean, not in Southern Virginia. Well, was it hard
0: growing up there or I mean, like, do you identify as Latinx, Colombian American?
1: I identify as Colombian, Colombian. Um, which I was thinking the other day, I was like, I guess technically I'm Colombian American, but I definitely identify first and foremost as Colombian. I feel like I had a weird experience growing up in Virginia because although there weren't a lot of. Latinos, Mm -hmm. Um, my dad was a scientist, and so at the particle accelerator, the lab that he worked at, you had all these people from all over the world, and Mm -hmm. so our family friends were like from Bangladesh, and from Puerto Rico, and from India, and like, like I didn't have a normal Southern Virginia kind of like friends of the family. Until you went to school. Well, yeah, when I went to school, right, um... There was, like, one girl from Puerto Rico. Yeah. Like, that was it. As far as, like, Latinx people's, I think. I really, I'm pretty sure, like, I was definitely the only person from South America. Um, and, you know, looking back, I can now identify those moments where I was like, oh, that's why that was kind of screwed up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's why that teacher purposely said my name wrong. You know, you for the say, whole How do you year. say Gomez wrong? Well, they would say Natalia wrong. You know, you have like Natalia, you have Natilla, Natalia. That's not even, the, that's yeah. not, it's not. Attila, right. Attila, I mean, no. Yeah, no. Just forget about the N, no. Oh my god! I did get called Natilla one time and I was like, what in the world? Like, how do you mess
0: man, that up? So close to Nutella. <laughs> no.
1: Like you I know. can pronounce Nutella, that's
0: Italian, <laughs> right? right? It's, so like, so it's like that it's moment like,
1: where you're like, oh, you're doing it on purpose. Yeah, I yeah. get it out. Like my brother also had that experience, so you know, there's, looking back, there's more of that. But mm-hmm. for the most part, my family, friends, you know, we sort That's of surrounded great. ourselves with a second family. That's great. Um, that gave us a lot of perspective, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. In a way that in high school, I just was like totally oblivious to the rest of what was happening. Right. For the most part. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so outreach, um, anything else you want to add? I mean, I think I thought also you were, did a lot of work with inviting different schools within Pittsburgh, outside the land community, I think a lot of like underprivileged.
1: Yeah, so this membership program that I was sort of mentioning is for girls living around Pittsburgh who financially might not have access to the museums. Um, it was a program that launched 2015, I think. It came on like about 2016. Um, and so that started out as being like for ages 6 to 18. It was a crazy age range, even though technically I don't think we we're supposed to do that. What do, you,
0: what, what do you mean you're not supposed to?
1: Well, you can't hand a membership to a 6-year-old and tell oh. them to come. Hmm. Because What's the age then? 14? 13. 13. Okay. So now that's why the membership is for 13 to 18 okay. because we can actually give somebody mm. a membership card and say, come, because they can use it independently. Right. So that was, that's one of the obstacles of that program. But it, is, it was really great and is still really great in that my job with that is to tell as many people about it and say, if you have any trouble getting here, if you don't know where to go, you don't know what to do with your card, if you have any questions whatsoever, I'm here to help. And so I not only just tell people about this membership and try to get these girls signed up for it, But we would run sort of special workshops. Um, We've done, we do like all these communications to try to like ease the transition into a museum, especially if maybe you haven't been here. Or you've only been here a few times or only with your school. Mm -hmm. Um, So that has been like sort of far and wide reaching in terms of trying to spread the word across Pittsburgh. Right, right. And now it's just tailored now to 13 to 18 is mm. the only difference. So the strategies also have to change because you're right. dealing with high schoolers right, who right. Like, are too cool for you, you know, 30-year-olds yeah. at yeah. the museum. <laughs> um, so it's been a f- awesome, fun challenge. Today. Has
0: it been successful? I think so. Yeah.
1: I mean, I would definitely say yes in that people use their memberships. That's good. They want to come. And that's definitely a huge mark of success. Not only do they come once, but they come multiple times. Yeah. You know, sort of relating to, like, my new sort of attempted focus at promoting this membership to the Latinx community, Latina community, because it's for girls. It was, like, probably the most rewarding. Like, I call on the phone to get these girls signed up because they're, like, in ESL, so they're having some language barriers to, to completing the form. But I translated everything so that they... They know what they're getting themselves into. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, after signing them up, getting a wonderful email from this young woman who was like, hey, I'm super excited about this membership. I'm really honored, whatever. I've never been to a museum before, and I don't know what to do when I get there. And I was just like, this is awesome that I can be helpful and that this is going to be your first museum experience. Like, let me tell you. Here. You know, I'm happy to meet you if you want. That's awesome. So... And those are, like, the really rewarding experiences. So even...
0: Did you then lead them around? No,
1: I just, like, sent them an email, and she, okay. like, you know, is a high schooler still, despite me wanting to help. She's like, I got a friend. It's cool. Like, thank you.
2: Oh. <laughs> you know, she was kind wow. of like,
1: that's awesome. Thanks so much for your help. I'm good. Um, Like, I got it, you know? Which, yeah, I'm like, all right, like, rock it. Yes, you do got it. Yeah. Um, But, like, you know, me overly enthusiastic, so yeah. I'm like, helping in any way I can. So... Those are definitely, like, the rewarding, extra rewarding experiences. But a lot of the members and their grown-ups have, you know, written and said, you know, we really right. appreciate this program. Right, right. Um, I mean, that's
0: the hardest. I think that's the hardest thing because, you know, my friend mentioned that a lot of museums, their version of being inclusive is just, like, translating things in Spanish mm-hmm. without any actual outreach. Right, you or know follow-up. Yeah, or- they'll be like, Oh, we everything's translating in Spanish, so now we can, you know, wipe our hands and say we're inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. it's, it's a lot more than that.
1: Right. And I think that that was one of the things with the membership. It was it, it may have stemmed, and I say may, cuz it wasn't part of those initial conversations. It may have stemmed from a really warm and wonderful place of saying, well, the cost of entry to the museum is the barrier for people. It's expensive. It's only, yeah, right. It's, it certainly is a barrier, it's but like you can't also, mm, for some people, you can't just make it free and expect them to come because right. they should see value in it. Right. They might not see value in it. Because, it's hard. Yeah.
0: Museums are scary places if you don't know the history about it. And yeah,
1: and they're exhausting. Yeah. Right? There are only so many places to sit down. Mm-hmm. Our floors are hard, and there's a sort of mentality that you have to take it all in at once
0: And if you don't understand that, you're dumb.
1: Yes, exactly. So cost is certainly a barrier, but it's not the only one. And that was one of the things that when I was, when I came on to the project, I really tried to work hard on was, you know, not all of these 500 girls are the same. They're not, they're radically different. The only thing they have in common is that they have self-identified as having financial need, Mm. right? Cause we don't, we don't require proof or anything like that. So it's, that's the only thing that tied them together. You know, they're from all over Pittsburgh. Yeah. They're from all sorts of ethnicities and backgrounds. So what we need to do is just find ways to keep making all four museums open. And so that's transparency. That's communicating what's going on or what you do when you get here. And, you know, I mean, just, just making it more open. And you're in charge
0: of all four or just Carnegie Museum of Arts?
1: Um and Natural History? So the membership... Is for all four of the museums so my communications are for all four I definitely have more of an art bent because that's where I work and that's what I know right but for example central services which is like IT and things like that there's a really cool um, project called the innovation studio and they were really like jazzed to be like we're happy to help out and then we can can. so Mm -hmm. we actually like I helped them organize a sort of multi-session workshop for yeah. exclusively for Legacy Girls um, who are interested in getting to know, like, how to build your own website, you know, for example. Mm. So it does go beyond all four museums, and I just sort of, if I don't have the answer, I do all the legwork behind the scenes to figure out how we can get the answer Okay. in a way that we're not sending somebody on a wild goose chase mm-hmm. through all four museums plus central services.
0: The four are... Uh, Carnegie Museum of Art, Warhol, Natural History Museum, and
1: the Science Center. Science Center, which I haven't been to. Yeah, the Science Center is fun. Yeah, I have only been there once. Also, <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it worth it? I, I,
0: uh,
1: I think you know it depends on what I, you want to get out of it.
0: Yeah, it's just interesting because I've I, no one never talks about it.
1: It definitely gears younger. Um, okay, then maybe that's why. And they do have a cool thing called SportsWorks. Mm. It's just it's packed um with people. But they have like a submarine outside that you can like go into and that's cool. And they have the model train yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Which seems like a weird thing for science center. But anyways. Uh so yeah, so I just try to connect people across all the boards. But and that's the thing. It's like there's just so many we have so many barriers <laughs> for people to get here. Yeah. And then to like know where go. And transportation. Pittsburgh
0: yeah. transportation is can be really difficult. It's really difficult.
1: So that's one of the things. I was, you know, if you have a hard time getting here, let me know. And what um, can you
0: do to help them out?
1: I've budgeted like bus passes, oh, and nice. so um, I don't have an infinite supply, but I have a chunk. Right. And so if somebody wants to get somewhere, I can at least do that. The good thing is that for the girls, thirteen to eighteen, most of the public schools here also provide them bus passes, hmm. and so the teens can kind of like get around. Which is also why they're a good age group for that. But it takes a lot of follow-up and people don't realize yeah. that like if you actually want to make a space feel inclusive, you have to meet people where they're at. And you can't assume that they're going to find value in the thing that you're doing yeah. just because like they should. Right. You know, to think is the big misconception. Right. It's like, we need more people to come here. Well, have you proved why right. they should? Nobody has that much time anymore. Yeah. You know, like... You gotta really, you can't assume, and I think that that's one of the big problems that museums have. Is yeah, figuring out how do you legitimize why you're here. Right.
0: I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I think like we were talking last time, like the the whole issue with the Dina Lawson thing. I think that was an example of that. You know, where people felt like the museum, for whatever reason, through the history of it or their perception of it, wasn't a safe space. So then they projected all these different things upon Dina Lawson, who's African-American photographer, right? And then was criticized by a number of African-Americans in, on Facebook and then sort of got mm-hmm. this sort of strange thing, which I don't think it ever was about Dina Lawson or, you know, about anything but just what the institution represented, right? Yeah. And, that, and then that gets difficult, but that's sort of like you're talking about, just the different barriers that people are experiencing or right. perceiving to... Experience, right,
1: right. There's a lot of baggage, and yeah. I think that precisely what you're saying, like the Dina Lawson exhibition. You know, there are a few people who don't like Dina Lawson's work. Fine, there's always going to be that. Yeah, but you're right. It wasn't about Dina Lawson. It was um, from an internal, or at least standpoint, I don't think so. I didn't. Yeah. I haven't
0: spoken to the those oh. people who complained. That's, but I think that's what. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: internally so at the museum, we've had a lot of conversations. You know, staff felt really unprepared. About for the exhibition, there are staff people who felt really hurt by this, just as outside community members did. There's frontline staff who have to then navigate people's projections when they come into the space, whether they're super excited or they're super pissed, or even in some cases, saying inappropriate things to security guards. Yeah. You know, oh, is that you in that photograph? Like, no. And why do you feel like you can talk to me this way? Yeah. Um, So internally, we had a lot of conversations. That's like so messed up. Is that you in the photograph? Is that you in the photograph? You know, pointing to the (sighs) semi-nude woman. You know, where it wasn't in a space that people were really ready to to handle it. Right. And because the museum does have so much baggage, and we don't have the representations of Black life. Yeah. in our galleries we don't have a lot of it and especially not in photography because we don't have a lot of photography up anyways right you have teeny harris and then you have dina lawson and that's all of like the way in which the museum is portrayed to approach the black community is put on those two which are just i mean that's kind of like unfair for the work but it right. makes sense you're sort of putting in a public space you don't have a wide range of representation right Of course people are going to feel like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And staff felt very unprepared. So it was, yeah, so we ended up having with this inclusion working group that I'm a part of, um, which is just self-selecting group of staff who meet, we heard that a lot of staff just wanted to have conversations about, you know, why are you offended? Why am I offended? Why am I not offended? You know, just kind of circling these things. Yeah. just to be able to have a conversation, which is the point of art, some would say. Some. Some. <laughs>
0: until, you to, um, until you go to some like art art lectures, and you're like, oh, this person doesn't ever talk right. to anyone. Wait a minute. <laughs> They're just in their head. <laughs> They're in a vacuum. Yeah.
1: Um. So we held these uh, meetings for staff to be able to share their personal responses, and you know, really like growing empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the idea that in talking and looking at an art piece or artworks that you can understand somebody else's perspective that there isn't that we're all coming to this with our own experiences. And so that was really helpful. So I'm glad that we did that, but it did come to light that, you know, the museum is not in a vacuum and the art that we bring here is also therefore not in a vacuum. Right. Um, That the institution has its own context and framing
0: and you need time to allow it to in a sense normalize that representation mm-hmm. right and just dinas was definitely a very intense mm-hmm. i think version but then because it's, it's seemingly the only one
2: mm-hmm.
0: right then it seems as if that the museum's representation of African-Americans are in this only one way, right? you know, exactly. in the same way that like, I think, you know, like when Queer Eye came out, it was just like people are like, oh, that's how all gay people act. Or right, or right. at least if you were a gay person, you'd, you'd be like, I'm not
1: necessarily
0: that way. Right, like but, I don't fit that. But like the representation makes it seem like it. And mm-hmm. then so you almost, you know, you can have a sort of self-hate at that because that becomes a representation supposedly of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. Or that's how people
1: are like learning about your culture quote, you know. Right.
0: When actually what's more important is just sort of normalizing and allowing just for like there's a range of different representations of of a type of person. Right. Or gender.
1: Right.
0: You know, or race. Right.
1: And that's where that context and framing, you know, Dino is very much speaking to the history of portraiture and in photography specifically. Except that the context around that exhibition was the museum, right. not the history of portraiture. And for Pittsburghers, not everyone has quite come around to contemporary photography or even makes that jump when they see a photograph. They right. don't know that they should be framing it in terms of photographic art right. practice. Right. And it's not an Instagram post. Yeah. Or, public, you know, publicity. Or So, I mean, I think that there's also that sort of art culture here in Pittsburgh that a lot of people, you know, like just... Haven't been along for the whole ride to get to seeing a photograph that way. Yeah, you know. And we also have had staff that talk about when the Teeny Harris show opened. There was like a big, massive show in oh I don't know, I don't remember when it was, but it was like the big when the museum had acquired all these negatives. And there was a big scanning, yeah. and they put on this big, beautiful Heinz show um, in the main sort of rotating galleries. Big, beautiful on Heinz the second show. floor. On the second okay. floor. Okay. It was awesome. One of the people who was working as a docent and is now stewarding the archive. She mentioned that, you know, people seemingly with good intentions, I think, who knows, came up to her and would see a picture of this, you know, beautiful black woman yeah. in beautiful night attire, and they would ask her if that clothes really belonged to that woman. Like how mm. could they possibly afford own such it. beautiful mm. things? You know, that Pittsburgh being a very, having its own sort of racially charged history, you know, sort of like, yeah, like the added context. This isn't a white cube. Yeah. It really isn't. And sort of curate or organize things, thinking like it is. I think this is one of those moments where it was like. Just a reminder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all come to things with baggage.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also like also you just like things that you see neutral are never truly neutral. Yeah. And I think like the recent release that um or rehang of the show that Eric Crosby did, mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting way to look at it. I mean, I think I subconsciously knew, but then it being described to me, I think. Just made me rethink things, right? Because mm-hmm. I think, as I understand it, Eric's vision was to not hang things in chronological order, right? Because in doing so, it meant that if you didn't fit this very specific chronology that was predetermined, then there wasn't a reason to show you.
1: Right. I mean, he definitely has ruptured that sort of march through the ages, yeah. which is like, yeah. Like whose ages? Right, right? whose. And yeah. what, hap- right, what happens when you don't fit or it's, you're not what the history book has you as like the heavy hitter. You right. know? You know, it's it's like roughly chronological, but it's more about the ideas right. that are that are keep banding these artists together. Um,
0: but if you don't think too hard about it, you're like, oh well chronology is neutral. Right, right. right. Like yeah. it's, it's just like one yeah, years we're, after the other. Yeah, we're just following exactly as history tells it. So mm-hmm. like if you're not in it then like
1: Right. Whatever. Yep. Like tough tough luck. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think that because of that, you're right, um, he's been able to hang a lot of works that haven't been on view before, yeah. um, because they didn't fit mm-hmm. the sort of narrative or the you know the kind of like yeah the fan favorites yeah um, and and risking not putting up a fan favorite in place of putting up an artist who hasn't been given, given enough time to yeah. To build its fan base, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that we have a lot of works up there, you know. People were sad that the Calder went down. Okay. You know, yes. The
0: you, can so see sad, cal- you can like, saw- see Calder Right, anywhere. you can see Calder
1: somewhere else. Like, <laughs> well, why don't you check out this beautiful Joan Mitchell instead? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. A lot of that, I think, has been the... But it's been great. I think everyone's really excited and jazzed about it. Yeah. Have you gone up to see it?
0: I saw it very quickly. I saw an opening night, but oh yeah, um, you, who who actually looks at art opening nights? Right,
1: no. Yeah,
0: uh, I think I'm gonna go back there this coming Wednesday. Actually.
1: Go. But,
0: uh, and my favorite piece there is that Bruce Conner, mm-hmm. which does it but does the museum own that piece? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. How it's come it's in, that should that should be like up 24 seven?
1: Which is why it's up now. 24 know, seven. <laughs> like that was my
0: favorite piece. I think I first saw that at the Whitney. Mm-hmm. They had that that video show. Um, and that was the first time I saw it and I was like, this is amazing.
1: yeah. And I mean, I think because for a long time, the way that our modern and contemporary art was stewarded was, as I understand it, it was so the curators of the international would do the international and then they would stick around between that international and the next. and the next stewarding our our collection and then like you know, you would sort of hand off, responsibility like I don't know it was something like that and so Eric is I think like the sort of first sort of more stable permanent curator of that and he has a background as I understand it primarily in painting and video it's like, mm-hmm. his, like his jam Yeah. so one of the things that he did when he first came was to really just dig through the video archives because I don't think a lot of them care probably Yeah, yeah I mean a lot of people hadn't really given our time based media like much of a Gander, yeah, um, and so working with with a staff member who is specifically in that, you know, to try to like really make sure things were cataloged and buttoned up, and yeah, and so now it's great we have the Bruce connor that'll be up and running all the time, and then a rotating gallery of heavy hitters. So yeah. right now we have a Gordon Matta Clark film. Oh yeah, just curious because I'd never seen the f- a film.
0: It's just I think I walked quickly past it. it's just him documenting the destruction of a building. Yeah, he cut it, right. right. Yeah. So it's
1: like the photographs I feel like are better. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think so. than the video, but yeah. All right, fine. Yeah. You know. For somebody who's like never thought of like tearing apart a building, it might be very fascinating for them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you have anything else to add? What are
1: you what are you what are you working on these days?
0: I am working on this podcast. Hey. Uh Yeah, I mean, I think that particularly this podcast...
1: Who have you talked to with your podcasts? What Or how about this? Instead of who, has there been anything that in your conversations has really, like, stuck out? It's like, oh, yeah, that was, like, such a good conversation. Or, like, that was an insightful thing that they Hmm. said. Like, hmm. Like, did somebody just, like, blow your mind with... with
0: Well, I think... Well, I mean... Gee, I don't know. I think the one that I think about the most is... The one that I had with um, a good friend Justin Favelli. he's the one who inspired me to start the podcast because cool. he has his own podcast. Aha, so he's a podcast expert. Latinos Who Lunch, shout out to Latinos Who Lunch. Yeah, um, and he's the one who I went to a residency with in Miami. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: but I think I think all of them are interesting for me because you know I think after when you're not in an academic environment and bubble, it's harder to meet people. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I've done the whole like let's grab coffee, let's do a studio visit. And they're all to me superficial. Mm. I mean, they can't sometimes not. Yeah, but I think I and I've I guess largely enjoyed this because it's an excuse to reach out to people. Yeah, but also, I think, because it's conversational and I'm allowing the conversation to sort of go anywhere and there isn't, supposedly there isn't a time limit until, one person gets bored, or uh, de- or uh, you know, some person you, like, has, tap
2: out, <laughs> or, or someone
0: or someone has a commitment, right? Right? right. Um, I you know, I'm allowed to speak. There isn't like a wall, and so it, I feel like, and because I'm also selecting people who are people of color, and that is my interest. It's giving also, and that's my um, upfront mm-hmm. interest in it. It also gives them a voice to talk about things, however they want, and yeah. also they can also ask me questions and. So there's, I think, a give and take, which I think is opposed to, say, Terry Gross. Mm-hmm. When she interviews, like, no one knows anything about Terry Gross. Right. And, I, and if, and if I, I mean, they're all edited, so I'm assuming when the person asks something of Terry Gross, they take it out. Right. So it just seems like this sort of wall. Right. And I'm more interested, I guess, in just hearing about those experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I think it also creates a connection.
1: hmm totally. Yeah. It's also interesting that, the sort of difference when you have a microphone in front of you, like you sort of like, you're committed to giving the long story yeah. in a lot of ways. Like when you're out to coffee with somebody, you're kind of like, okay, like I don't want to bore them. Like, yeah. Just, just take the shortcut, you know, sort of breeze through it. Yeah. Surface level. And when you've been sort of presented with like, we're going to talk about some stuff. Yeah. Like, all right. Like, I guess I'll tell you because you actually want to know yeah. because you've gone through this much trouble. Um. I think that's also like and a there's really curious distinction.
0: Not a studio visit where you're like, okay, like I got to, oh, right. <laughs> I got, I got to somehow synthesize your entire oeuvre in yeah. the five minutes that I've met you. And then I have to somehow also say something seemingly smart. Oh yeah. Uh, no,
1: studio visits are, I feel like only really great when you have somebody who's, who visits you and is also interested in, like, that journey. Like, but also,
0: but also um, I think, willing to dish it out. Not yes. everyone is willing to dish it out. Yes, you know? true.
1: And that's what I mean, like, part of the journey, right? Like, knowing, you know, as uh, when you're in the middle of a piece and you're like, ah, I don't know if it's worth, you know, like, you're sort of, you need to hear it. Yeah. And also, you need them to come along for the, like, ride yeah. of... Of whatever this sort of pr- process right. is
0: and also people have different agendas mm-hmm. I think like Dan Byers in a very cynical way Dan Byers was the ex curator of the Carnegie Museum you know he said he think maybe, and maybe he was just being really cynical at the time but he was like <laughs> I think a really successful studio visit is when you get a solo museum show from that visit.
1: Oh my gosh, I, What? Get out of here. Yeah, and I was like I
0: was like, "Geez, like I mean, technically, <gasps> I guess that is a successful studio visit for an artist, but like if that's the goal at the same time I'm also like I'm not sure what you talk about. Like th- at that point, that's just like you showing your best work, not saying anything, and then allowing the curator just like to fill in all fill the fill in all yeah. the holes, right? right. And yeah, I, you know, I guess that would be nice once a year, but um, it's also nice to have a discussion and like you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's I almost wouldn't even call that a studio visit. You know, yeah, that's like a studio exhibition that you're hoping will lead to an yeah. actual exhibition.
0: But I also feel like that's how I'm not. I I haven't met enough curators, but. I feel feel like that's how a lot of curators approach studio visits, you know? But then that's also different than a critic, that's yeah. different than like a teacher, that's different than an yeah. artist. Right. So anyway, it gets really confusing trying to figure out like, okay, what is this studio visit?
1: Right, totally. For, and who is it for? Who is it for? And what is, yeah, what is the success or what is the goal of yeah. it? Yeah. Because I think you're, one thing that I have found really curious is, uh, at least in a museum, sort of, the, the curator relationship to artist and also staff relationship to artists is very weird. Oh, yeah. um, as an artist, you know, you're like, okay, these are my peers, you know, I may not know them or they might be further along in their career, but but we're all just making work, yeah. you know, it's we're makers, you know, and even if you're not literally making, you're sort of in the art. In the creative field. Yes, yeah, creative field. and And then it's weird because then some curators will put these artists on like weird pedestals, they can't be touched or bothered, but like, It's weird, weird, you know, or like when a piece is done, it's like really done in the artist's mind. It's like, "Eh, well, sometimes, I guess, but like not often. (laughs) Sometimes for people, like they might see something that goes in that gallery show that they're like, I really kind of don't like it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, but okay, sure. Yeah. You know, it's very weird. I also, it just reminded me a little bit of like that um, how do you define success? Because oftentimes, you know, by non-artists, I'm sort of asked like, well, like you want to be, you, you want to be an artist, right? And I'm like, I am an artist. Well, but like <laughs> you don't make your living off of yeah, selling but, your yeah. artwork, right? <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. well, that doesn't mean I'm not an artist. Yeah. And also maybe for me, my mark of success isn't just making a living off of my artwork. Right. You know, I have since graduating school, I really kind of put in my head, like, I want a job, It'd be cool if I had like a part time job, right? That then I could also use my other part of my time to do my work in that capacity. But like to me, it it is helpful. Yeah. For me, to structure my life with a job that I can grow and learn from, that I can help other people support their practice. Right. For me, that's really like essential. Because
0: ultimately, art is such an egotistical thing.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of like the navel gazing, you know, yeah. like. Yeah. I was thinking that I had this show a year ago, and it was kind of a little bit of a disaster. It was like not enough time. It Where was, was very, it? It was at Unsmoke, okay. but it was like the space next to Unsmoke. Okay. Um, Which is this gallery in Braddock, and the space next to it was like in construction, and so the owner was like, sure, if you want to have a show, go for it. So I did it with Kara Skyling. So she had these beautiful watercolor drawing paintings. And I had this like crazy giant installation, you know, made of drywall and 2 by 4s In a space that
0: is also exposed of drywall and 2 by (laughs) 4s It was exposed
1: of uh, plaster and lads. So there's like a nice, wonderful texture. Yeah, But like it was too humid. So things weren't drying fast enough. Mm. I didn't have enough time to sort of fail fast. Yeah. I was trying to go as fast as I could.
0: (laughs) That's a great, that's a great synthesis. Didn't have enough time to fail fast. Yes,
1: I know. It's like, <laughs> I remember one time I built this giant thing. It was cantilevered across this mezzanine. And I was like, I don't like it. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, here's the moment where I either tear it all apart uh-huh. and see where we go next. Yeah. Or we're just going to try to push through. Yeah. And I made the decision to push through because I didn't have enough time. Yeah. um, To really iterate. So, but anyway, so. Uh oh yeah. So the work I'm not feeling great about, you know, but I'm working my butt off, trying to get this thing up in this space. And you know, it's opening day. You're like trying to invite all of your friends because you're working so hard, knowing full well that once this show is over, all those materials essentially go in the trash. Yeah. Like whatever I can't salvage, it's mm-hmm. just trash, mm-hmm. garbage. Yeah. Money down the drain yeah. from going to Lowe's and Home Depot. Yeah. All of those hours. To then buy beer, to feed people, to hope that they come see your work. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is crazy. (laughs) Like, There's no other profession in that you would do all of that and keep doing it. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, let me just throw all my money at a thing that will probably come down into the trash to then also buy people booze. To entice them to come see it.
0: See, I always say though that the closest thing to that is planning a wedding, <laughs> which is why, which is why, every, which is why large portions of the population loves weddings because that's, oh I, I think that's a one time that anyone can be an artist. You're <laughs> curating where people sit. You're curating food. You're curating musicians. You're curating an event, a performance space. Yes. Right, and like it's all largely useless, which is what art is, right? Because I guess there's a certain segment of the population who thinks it is the, <laughs> it actually is uh, important. But like it, it's just a piece of paper, right? Like if you, right. you know, I think I met someone in Italy and he had a partner and a kid. And then someone asked, like, "Are you considered married?" And by the Italian government, he's like, "Well, for all intents and purposes, yes. Like if we broke up, like we're living together, we have a kid, right. yes, we're right. married. Right. Like like even if we don't have a piece of paper, right. the government sees us as married." Wow! You know, right, and yeah. so like, but like, anyway, so but like I when th- you
1: realize that like l- marriage is really about the laws, yeah. that divide your property, right, and you know who has rights to you when you're like dying in the hospital bed, who's gonna make your decision, right, you right, know, if you haven't otherwise right specified,
0: but um, but yeah, so I I think weddings are everyone's chance <laughs> to be an artist.
1: That's genius and totally true. Right, like, what other instance do you like?
0: Throw so much money at an event
1: to entice people to come. to curate all the experiences, and then
0: then you see all these things of like people who plan weddings, and they're like, "I love planning weddings." And oh my gosh right, 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 or like, or like they got married, they plan, and then they'll have these like Facebook posts, like, "If anyone needs me to plan a wedding, I'll do it." And that's 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 the creative outlet. Anybody
1: to say that, but I also, I guess, I don't know any wedding planners. (laughs) Yeah, that seems crazy. But yeah, it's but, so but true. It's fun.
0: You get to you get to put on a show,
1: right? You orchestrate a show. You orchestrate it's... a show. Oh my gosh, totally. And then you have like lots of personalities. So if you like drama, flicks, you get, and you know? get the right,
0: you get the right of speech if oh you want gosh. to. You get you get the rights, everything if you want, <laughs> or you could pay money. Right. But like most people, I think right. it's like this chance to right. let that out.
1: Oh my gosh, that is so for no true. reason, for absolutely yeah. no reason. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the one I've never thought about that that way. That is so true. It makes me feel like a little bit better. I'm not actually that better, but.
0: But see, I'm always like, if I, I'd rather. The art show. I'd rather, yeah, just come to the art show for me. <laughs> like, I don't care about the wedding if I get married, but I, I'd rather you just come to my art show. Right, come
1: to my art show, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. It is funny, one of those things. But just thinking about how you define success of things. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I don't. I don't think I'll ever really get to sell a piece. Cause I, I don't. Have I ever even sold a piece? I don't even know if I've ever sold a piece.
1: It's hard to sell a piece. Yeah,
0: it's hard. I or get representation or know, whatever. Yeah, but, right.
1: Right. The whole business aspect yeah. kind of like makes you wanna throw up. Yeah. But it's also. I mean, it's like one of those things. You We're know, talking about like your workday and productivity, like. When you're working as an artist, you are also like your business manager, and yeah. you have to do your finances. And you're a brand. And you're a brand, yeah. like which like is also, also crazy. The it's thing so about. bonkers. Like, right? And it's like, okay, now you know, seeing people who are limiting their art practice because certain ideas that they might be excited by maybe don't fit in the expected brand that people have learned to buy yeah. into. Yeah. Like, that's bonkers. I get it, but, like, that's crazy, yeah. you know? Like, why did we get this into this thing in the first place? We're not yeah. going to, ugh. Yeah. But that's, right, I'm also not a successful brand, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't
0: know. I mean, I think, I guess in that sense, though, that's so to most other art forms, which mm-hmm. is you got to, yeah. the most successful things tend to be things that are easily sellable and mm-hmm. consistent.
1: Right, consistent, right? yeah. And then
0: the artwork that you fall in love with those were the radicals, but those were probably the people who had the hardest time yeah. selling a lot of times. Right.
1: Right? Like we all... Or didn't sell anything until they died. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Or like, yeah, and then you forget about like, there are people who make livings off it. Like I went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and like I went to all the galleries and it was like the ugliest paintings I've ever seen. But they're being sold for like 10, mm. 10K plus and oh they exist, you yeah. know. Right. With on the history books, but I don't know. I guess they're getting fulfillment, and who am I to say? Like, right. I think they're shit, but like, who who am I to say that? Like, you know, don't do that or right. like, you know. I bet
1: that artist feels great. Yeah, I'm making sh- it. I'm sure. Totally, and it's like yeah. I think it's no matter really having it clear in your mind like what success means to you. Yeah, is helpful, and even if it changes, right? Yeah, like the idea that is it selling a piece? Is it being represented, yeah, or is it just consistently showing up to studio every whatever, yeah, period. You know, like for me, that that's that's what it. I've sort of, at least for right now, like solidly said. Like for me, success as an artist is consistently showing up to my studio, mm-hmm. and. Consistently trying to engage people in my yeah, work, yeah. whether that is through studio visits right. or it's through shows, even if they're not like huge shows, right? You know, in some weird semi-construction zone buildings, yeah. like having conversations about the work and consistently showing up to work on it, yeah, has been like, I'm like, okay, yeah, just just <laughs> you know, set yourself up for some amount of success, yeah, because if you're like, I need to be the most Famous artist and being the next Carnegie International and that's my success story. Yeah,
0: although those are uh, good luck. Those are those are nice things to egg you on.
1: Yeah, those are great aspirational goals. Yeah, Yeah. you know, definitely aim high. Yeah, but I also feel like it's important to have like some like you know smaller. smaller Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Or
0: like I think I think a good way to think about is having different steps mm-hmm. to yeah. you know like so like i think one of the things that i try is like the artists that i really love i hope that my pieces are having like maybe even one percent of mm-hmm. what they're trying to do mm-hmm. right so i think of like the video of camille and rose gross fatigue which is one of my favorite videos also the videos of rachel rose mm-hmm. and also like the pathos of felix Gonzalez torres yeah right like Seeing if I could at least, even for a moment, grasp that. Mm-hmm. And if I think I can sort of do a little bit of it, that'll make me happy. Yeah. And that's to me, that's like a small success. Yeah. You know?
1: Oh, cheers to, cheers to that. Yeah.
0: So. All right. All right. Thanks, Natalia. Yeah, absolutely. Or n- Nutella. Right. What was, what was, what was Nutella, Nutella. Nutella.
1: You know, it is funny, though. So, the last thing on the, on the name thing. I was faced with the moment when I was leaving of, like, my answering machine. Yeah. And, because my name is Natalia. But, like, in English, if you say that, people are like, sorry, come again? You know, yeah. like, right, like you have to sort of, yeah, like, okay, so if I don't want to do that, then I have to do Natalia. Um, even, like, some girl at Starbucks today thought that I was, like, from the Midwest because I overemphasized my the A's. One on, the one on Craig? Yeah, the one on oh. Craig Street. She was like, are you from Michigan? I was like, no. She's like, you say your A's funny. I was like, oh, jeez. You know, like, no. I just was trying to emphasize the way that you say so you can spell it. Although I, and I, so I had this moral dilemma yeah. of, like, do I say it how you should say it, mm-hmm. which is Natalia. Yeah. You've reached Natalia Gomez. Yeah. Or do I say, hi, you've reached Natalia Gomez. Like a, you know, yeah. a gringa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't actually, I think I decide. I think on my answering machine, I do have it, um, Natalia I think you should, I think that's right. And it's curious because I had sort of trained myself out of saying it Mm. that way, and it wasn't until a good friend of mine who is from Puerto Rico, he came to visit, he was Mm -hmm. like part of the Latino crew at CMU that we're all friends with, and every time he introduced me to people, he would say, this is my friend Natalia, Yeah, I was like. I am right. Yeah. That is your friend Natalia. Like yeah. I yeah. am Natalia. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gotta yeah. own it. Yeah. I think you
0: should especially well, especially your answering machine, because that's when people are meeting you. Yeah. You have absolutely no reason, I think, to bend over. Right. But although I, I will say for Starbucks, you know, having worked there, you're so overworked <laughs> that, yeah. that right. like you're actually right. the whole system of Starbucks is to like get people in and out as quickly as yeah. possible. Right. So right. I yeah, I don't want to,
1: like, torture, like, the poor person who's like, I just need to spell your name yeah. so I know who to give this to.
0: Because um. I'll give them my English name now when I'm, like, reserving things. I'll be just like, it's Chris, because, you know, like, <laughs> they're... Like, you around, around the age. Yeah, like, I don't want them to, like, have to think about, like, how to spell that, you know, yeah. it's just, I'm realizing now, like, sometimes it's yeah not worth, I don't know if not worth it, but, like... You're causing someone to stress a lot in a situation where it actually doesn't matter.
1: Mm-hmm, right. You're not. You're not forming like, a lasting relationship. Yeah.
0: Then. You just. They just want a name to like yeah. give you something. Yeah.
1: My mom. And then never see you again. Right. My mom. Uh. Her name is Hilda, huh. which in Spanish is spelled H-I-L-D-A. Mm. So, my mom does have an accent. So when she's she tries to say Hilda which is also a weird name and like nobody is yeah who's knows, called like, Hilda, Hilda. <laughs> um and so then she'll go Hilda and then people are like like nobody knows what to do with that so then she started trying to pick names and I still remember one time she I forget which one she picked but she tried to pick like an English name but it was like just obscure enough and with her <laughs> accent it just sounded just like off enough that once again we were back to square one and the the poor woman at Starbucks is staring at us like, You
0: should have told her to pick the name. Like, I don't know. Yeah.
1: We used like, um, Anne. Anne. Yeah. That's, no, that's Anne. Easy. Mary. Yeah. Uh, I've tried to go Gomez, but oddly, some that also sometimes is like, like Gomez like, is the first Gomez, name. Gomez. Yeah. But, yeah just, mm. just Gomez. Like, just, yeah. But some that sometimes also rattles people because they're like, Your first name isn't Gomez. I'm like, yeah. No, just put it down.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyways, that's my last. Thank you, you, (laughs) Natalia.
0: Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com. Or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.